Hi everybody. My name is Christian Cisan and I am here today to give you the 3 p.m. webinar to the defenses to temporary disability. And we'll go into uh, why uh, temporary disability is being used in this month's webinar, uh, mostly because of something that uh, the board has articulated and we'll get into that. Um, but let's talk about what else we'll discuss today. Paying temp in general, right? Just an overview of what it is, uh, how much we pay, uh, certain things like that. Um, also, we'll talk about when you can stop paying, right? I mean, this is definitely of interest to our side, uh, but there are some procedural steps that have to be taken along the way to make sure that it doesn't incur any penalties uh, or that uh, we made the proper notification before the suspension occurs. Defenses and practical advice is going to be part of every webinar in our New York series, uh, and as a part of that, uh, we want to remind you that we are here live, right? This is the studio, second floor uh, of Lois LLC. I'm here live in suspenders, so we're all ready to go. Okay, waiting period and payer compliance, right? Uh, this is the initial determination we need to make regarding lost time and whether it's related. Uh, we know, or some of us know, that there is a seven-day waiting period. So, for example, if a claimant goes out of work and then returns two days later, then we initially don't have that uh, liability or responsibility to pay causally related benefits uh, issue in issuance of wage replacement, right? But an important thing to note is that the first seven days aren't actually payable until the 15th day, right? So sometimes uh, there would be uh, an eight period eight-day period of lost time, uh, but if the person returns to work before the 15th day, you don't have to issue that check right then and there. It's just a calendared item to be aware of. The next couple things uh, popping up on the screen have to do with the 1810 rule, right? Uh, it, it is part of payer compliance and reporting to the board, right? We're reporting that an accident has been alleged. Not necessarily what we have decided to do with that, you know, regarding compensability, but that's the initial thing we want to do in terms of compliance. On or before the 18th day of the event or within 10 days after the employer has knowledge of the event, we want to report that an accident has been alleged to us to have occurred at work or connected to work. And our practical advice here is to start paying benefits at the minimum rate to avoid penalties. Now, the reason this has all come up is because Accepted claims have used to be denied on the theory that there were no medical evidence. And we can all fashion uh, a type of case where a claim is accepted, but the medical reports haven't made it its way to our desks just yet. And that could be through 100% no fault of the claimant, right? Claimant goes to doctor, doctor completes report, doctor files report with the board or forwards to carrier. All of those steps take some time through, at no fault of, through no fault of the claimant. And what this, this compliance has uh, done to correct is make sure that if you are accepting the other facets of the compensability of this claim and you're just waiting on medical records, it articulates that you should begin paying wage replacement. The amount is unclear because we talk about average weekly wage, we talk about degree of disability, things that may have to be litigated, so our advice is to start paying the minimum rate to showcase that you are in compliance. How much to pay 
really depends on average weekly wage, right? We know that two thirds of the average weekly wage is going to be the total disability rate, but there are statutory maximums and minimums. The minimum rate for all dates of accident occurring in May 2013 and ongoing have a statutory number of $150 per week. That applies unless the average weekly wage is less than $150 per week. It's very rare, but we want to make it uh, clear that you should never be paying the claimant more from a workers' compensation benefit standpoint when that rate is higher than the average weekly wage. That would be an unjust uh, level of enrichment. The statutory maximum, of course, is the reason why AWW is so important and why we're actually talking about temporary indemnity today. Uh, because the max rate for dates of accident after July 1st of this year has now gone up to $934.11. And the reason this number is, is now in place is every year, New York takes a sample size of all the employees working in, it, in its state, takes the average weekly wage of that sample size, and two-thirds of that becomes your statutory maximum. It's always going to increase for a variety of reasons that we're not here to discuss today, but essentially $934.11 is going to be your compensation rate if the claimant has a total disability, if you're accepting the claim on all other facets, and if the degree of disability is not being contested as anything below total. So how do we defend average weekly wage? First thing we wanna do is use actual wages. What a logical theory. Someone makes what they make and gets compensated on what they make, not a strange multiple that is uh, you know, articulated based on some archaic view of the workers' compensation law. To be clear, multiples do exist and are applicable in many cases. But before conceding to the use of a multiple, we wanna make sure that they actually apply. Similar workers are an important uh, uh, facet of this uh, multiple. If you don't have 52 weeks of wages prior to the accident for your claimant, it's very likely, especially if a claimant is represented, that their attorney will request a similar worker payroll. So we want to make sure that the similar worker payroll is actually being given a lot of thought, right? Is this person truly a similar worker? Do they work the same hours? Are they in a similar location doing this, doing similar job duties? Getting another employee to show that they made X or Y in contravention of what the claimant actually made should be followed up with to make sure that the multiple does not put us out of a normal reasonable range. Concurrent employment is also another thing we use to defend average weekly wage, right? We want to make sure that only eligible concurrent employments are being used. And when I say eligible, I mean out-of-state and federal employments are out the window. Right? Covered concurrent employment under the law states that employers who are subject to the New York workers' compensation law are actually eligible to have those concurrent wages added to a claimant's individual average weekly wage or primary average weekly wage. And the reason this is is because when a current concurrent employment is properly established, the named employer and carrier can then seek reimbursement from the special fund. The special fund essentially reimburses that employer for wages that they should not have been responsible for because they're attributable to the concurrent employer, 
only insofar as that concurrent employer is actually also a part of the New York workers' compensation law, thereby making assessments, uh, making uh, contributions to New York fund, anything that would allow the circle to be complete. If you have a New Jersey or a Connecticut employer providing concurrent employment, the circle breaks because the special fund cannot reimburse a named employer when there's no justifiable link from that concurrent employer to the fund. So terms of art, we talked about how much to pay and when we're going to pay it, but how do we determine the amounts based on a single, singular medical report? Or in most cases, multitudes of medical reports from multitudes of doctors. Let's just talk about the basics, right? A mild disability is correlative with 25%. So if we look at the formula, we take the average weekly wage, we multiply it by two thirds or 66%, and then you multiply it by the percentage of the disability. But the other columns under the, uh, the entries underneath the formula column shows there are different ways to actually reach the same result. And you should be aware of them just so you can do the backwards math when it becomes applicable, right? So under moderate, we just say two divided by three for two thirds as part of that equation, as opposed to a straight 66%. You're gonna come up with a little, little change based on some decimal points, but it's most likely going to come up with a normal uh, calculation. <clears throat> and in the marked disability, we have 75 over 150, which actually takes into account those two terms of the subsequent equation in the first two columns, right? So in this situation, you can simply take the average weekly wage and multiply it by the disability rate, which is 75 over 150 to come up with the actual answer. I would actually try using all of these formulas and see how they correspond to your case so you can see which one is more uh, beneficial or applicable to the, the case of bar. And our main defense, right, is not necessarily about amount. It's, it's about if it really, really is liable, right? We only pay for benefits for causally related lost time. When that lost time is actually connected to the work accident, right? So a couple of examples we have here is the Smith case and the Lawner case. In Smith, we talked about, well, not we, but the appellate division talked about retirement. If you can prove that a retirement was made voluntarily and without any connection to the work accident, you have a, an unrelated wage loss argument. Essentially, the theory is that the lost time from work is not attributable to work-related disability, but the claimant retired, and but for that retirement, he or she still would be working. Same kind of goes for the changing profession argument. Uh, it's, it's a rare occasion that this occurs because usually when a claimant changes profession, that claimant will likely be working and you might be facing a different type of argument in that arena. But in the event that they change professions and then get intermittent periods of lost time, you have to make the argument that the change in profession is actually the cause of the lost time, right? The change in profession has a different schedule, it has different duties that require the person to be out of work on day A, B, or C, right? Those are different from the straight, I'm out of work because I had an accident and I'm not working for anybody. Ending temporary disability, I'm sure this is where everyone uh, is going to uh, have their ears perked up because we want to know when we have the right to reduce or suspend benefits. The easiest scenario is when the claimant has returned to work, right? 
This may be in the form of a claimant's attorney wanting to avoid a fraud finding and just telling you guys that the claimant has returned to work. You can cut off benefits. Just make sure you file the SROI, serve a, a paper copy with it to the claimant and the claimant's attorney within one business day, and all is well. That's a very straight application of the scenario. Return to work, ergo, you should not get wage replacement benefits. When the claimant reaches maximum medical improvement, this is another opportunity to suspend temporary disability, but it depends on your case. We want to make sure that there isn't a continuing payment order running. We want to make sure that there isn't a disagreement between the party's doctor that we have to litigate. And we want to make sure that the maximum medical improvement finding by any particular doctor doesn't also come with it a finding a permanent disability that would entitle the claimant to awards anyway. So take a look at your case and consult with counsel to make sure that you're doing the right thing. Refusing accommodated work is certainly becoming a bigger topic. As uh, employers get larger and larger, they have the ability to offer light duty positions. So we'll talk about how we do that in reference to uh, attachment, which we'll talk about uh, at the end of the slide and on the next one. But retirement is another thing we want to focus on. We referenced it in the prior slide with the Smith case. Again, it's just a reminder that when a claimant voluntarily retires, we want to make sure that there's no link to the accident, right? If there's a retirement based on a scheduled uh, pension or a buyout, those, in, those cases must be relayed to your counsel with the proper documentation and also possibly a lay witness such as a supervisor or a human resources representative to authenticate any such retirement documents. And lack of attachment is kind of similar to refusing accommodated work, and we'll talk about it uh, in this slide, which is the steps that we need to take procedurally, right? So we start out with a light duty release. Now, a release can be conceded by a treating physician, or you may actually litigate the degree of disability before a judge, and the judge uh, is able to find uh, partial disability or determine that a doctor is credible who finds a claimant is fit to return to light duty. Once that release is officially on the books, then we either go to making a light duty offer or having the claimant be directed to produce evidence of independent work search and active uh, engagement or participation in vocational rehabilitation. When the light duty offer for the purposes of this slide is made, it usually asks the claimant to respond. Otherwise, uh, what would the offer be? When the claimant responds, or if the claimant responds, we want to verify that the response is in accordance with the right person and within the right time, right? So we want to make sure that the, the timeline is confirmed before we start talking about suspension of benefits anyway. If there's no response for, to a light duty offer, or in the case of the C258, which is the board originated form for independent work search, if there's no response, we wanna file an RFA2 to request a suspension of the ongoing benefits. Job placement services are variously popular depending on your case. Uh, there are state services and there are private services. What we want to make clear about job placement and vocational rehabilitation and the use of third-party vendors to help with your case is that the most important time to get them involved is after you have a finding of a partial disability, right? There's not gonna be much going on if the claimant is currently at a total rate of disability 
his doctors continue to find total, or the judge finds a total. You want a concession by the treating physician first, or an adjudication by a judge first, for you to then go through a job placement service reasonably and efficiently. And as I stated, this was a live question and answer. Uh, I'm gonna look at the questions right now, so if you were thinking about writing a question, now is the right time to do it. Uh, there's usually a couple that I have to go through, and if you can bear with me, it's a very small window, uh, and we'll see who is asked a question. Okay, Jane, and I got this in the 12 p.m. webinar, so this is great. Um, Jane asks, what can we do about labor market attachment for PPD claimants? And essentially, the PPD claimant, prior to April of 2017, would still have to look for work. PPD stands for permanently permanent partial disability. After April 2017, a bill has been a bill was introduced and it's now law stating that permanent partial disability claimants do not have to look for work to satisfy attachment rules. What does this mean for us is that it means that we have to be way more proactive at litigating partial disabilities before MMI is found. So when you have a finding from your IME or from the treating doctor that concedes a partial disability, it is not the time to be negotiating rates with your adversary if you don't believe that this claimant will come back to work. Having a partial disability on the record prior to MMI will allow you to raise labor market attachment, raise voluntary withdrawal, raise other defenses indicative of that partial disability before you get to MMI. Without doing so, you could reach MMI without actually being able to litigate labor market attachment. If claimant is MMI, but still stating 25%, for example, can you still suspend benefits? That is a good question, but it's also a tough question, right? Um, MMI and 25% is very difficult in a vacuum. Right? If you're at MMI and the claimant's getting temporary disability benefits and there's a continuing order to pay, then you definitely want to file an RFA 2 to make sure that the nomenclature of the disability benefits is transferred from temporary to either permanent or tentative. Keeping it at temporary pushes the MMI finding down the road, which we don't want to do. But suspending benefits uh, and I'm guessing the question is, is dealt with in terms of unilateral suspension, is tough because if 25% refers to an ongoing permanent disability, you'd be hard pressed to suspend unilaterally and then argue to the judge that it was proper when the IME concedes a permanent disability. If the 25% is in reference to schedule loss of use, well maybe we wanna make sure if it would advance fresh money to the claimant even if accepted. So if your prior payments are akin to a 10% schedule loss of use and your IME finds MMI with a 25% schedule loss of use, a suspension may not be proper in that scenario either because the report still would move money to the claimant. Getting the RFA2 is more for judicial purposes and for you to reserve your rights that would apply with that report and all the other reports prior to that date and setting in stone the process uh, to get to permanency. Okay, I think there was another question, but it also talked about uh, PPD claimants. So uh, I'm gonna imagine that uh, the asker got 
um, the answer to that question. But of course, if there are further questions, uh, you can email me, find my email address on the website. It's C-S-I-S-O-N at LoisLLC.com. Uh, very happy to be uh, providing this uh, question and answer seminar uh, on the New York series. Again, this is the Monday uh, series where we talk about the uh, baseline level of topic that we that is attributable to that month, right? In this month, we talked about how the board increased the statutory maximum rate. So we thought, why not a good idea to talk about temporary indemnity as a matter of course? Uh, it is a companion to our third Friday's podcast, which I host every third Friday of every month. And this month's edition is a especially interesting one. Uh, we had uh, guests from a company, Printing House Press, that helps us in our applications to the third department in the state of New York. So that's the appellate division cases that go above the board panel level, above the full board level, get out of administrative into what we call uh, big boy court. And we put our lawyer hats on that are a little bit heavier and we need uh, some assistance in terms of the filing that will allow us to focus on the substantive nature of our, our appeal and yours. So if anybody has questions on that or the webinar itself, please feel free to let us know. Again, on behalf of Lois, my name is Christian Cisan, reminding you guys to defend from day one.